And if you'd like to listen to the message in Mandarin uh, this morning, make sure that you're connected to our Linguali Wi-Fi network and that you've got the Linguali app on your smartphone and uh, click Mandarin on there and you'll be able to hear Dan who's doing the live interpretation this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear your word, hearts that are ready to receive it and wills that are eager to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've heard that there are two types of people in the world. There are those who wake up each morning with a smile on their face and reach for a non-caffeinated beverage before starting their daily workout. And then there are those that don't. And I'm much more aligned with Grumpy Cat on this. Good morning, there is no such thing. Are you a morning person or are you not a morning person? My morning routine, particularly in winter, often looks like a scene from Night of the Living Dead. When the alarm goes off, I hit the snooze button at least twice and question the legitimacy of whether it's worth my time getting out of this nice warm bed. I need to have a hot shower and a strong coffee before I even say good morning uh, to anybody. Uh, I'm not a morning person and I can see some smiles and some nods and I realise I'm not the only one. We all need help waking up and warming up and not just on cold winter mornings. The Bible says that living as a Christian in this world can often feel like a dark cold morning experience. Last week in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 the Apostle Paul described his Christian life and ministry of one of affliction, of suffering, of difficulty, sleepless nights and we can echo that experience as well. It's easy to press the snooze button on issues that may cause us to be disliked or feel uncomfortable in our world. It's easy just to snuggle up to those people or possessions that are shiny and showy and make us feel better about ourselves but are actually inhibiting our relationship with the Lord. I don't know how you're feeling in your Christian life at the moment. Maybe it is a cold winter morning. Well, I'm glad that you're here because Paul's got some advice and some encouragement for us today. Last week, Chris powerfully reminded us that we have a wonderful blessing as Christians, that God has reconciled us to himself, that Christ died for all, so that those who now live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and was raised. But the difficulty with that is, what does that mean and what does that look like to live for the one who gave up his life for us? Well, in our passages today from chapter 6, verse 14 to the end of chapter 7, Paul gives us a picture of what it might look like, what it can look like. And I'm summarising the whole passage into two little phrases because the passage is divided, I think, into two main sections, chapter 6, verse 14 to 7, verse 1, which I'm calling wake up, Uh, particularly wake up to apostasy, to those things and those people that might draw you away from Christ. And then secondly, warm up. Warm up to the Apostle Paul in particular and stay true to the gospel message that he has been proclaiming. Firstly though, wake up. Wake up and be ready to withdraw from unbelievers. Have a look what he says in verse 14. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers 
For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Don't be mismatched. And that command is echoed at the end of this section in chapter 7, verse 1. But more broadly speaking, he says, Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification or our our holiness in the fear of God. In other words, there are people, says the Apostle Paul, there are activities that are crazy for Christians to be involved with and to partner with. Verse 14 says that it is a a, a mismatch. Now, you might be more familiar with some older English translations of this passage where it says, do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. And the idea is simple enough. No doubt Paul has in mind maybe the command in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament for the Israelites to not yoke together an ox and a donkey when they're pulling the plough. And we have no real understanding about why that's a problem. Maybe the ox and the donkey run at different paces or maybe one jumps around more than the other and it's not a particularly economical way of ploughing the field. Maybe an ox and a donkey just don't make a nice couple. Whatever the case, the idea is simple enough. Don't mix things up that are heading in the wrong direction. And the seriousness of this for the Christian is expanded by the Apostle Paul in five rhetorical questions that follow that just build in terms of seriousness. Have a look again at verse 14 uh, to 16. Don't be mismatched with unbelievers. Firstly, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Secondly, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Thirdly, what agreement does Christ have with Belial? It's another word for the devil. What does a believer, fourthly, have in common with an unbeliever? And fifthly, what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? Did you notice the escalating comparison there? This is not a weak fix versus Cheerios comparison. This is serious, says Paul. It's one of righteousness and lawlessness, light and dark, Christ and the devil. There are relationships that are absolutely incompatible for Christians to be involved with. Paul's not joking around, is he? He wants Christians, whether in Corinth or today, to take holiness seriously. Why? Look what he says at the end of verse 16. For we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. If we have become a Christian, we haven't just been reconciled to God at a distance, says the Apostle Paul, but you are now the very dwelling place of God on the earth. You are a new temple, says the Apostle Paul. And the old temple, you know, the one that Solomon built in all of its splendor, it had many visual reminders that that was a holy place because God was said to dwell there. You know, big thick curtains and a whole lot of sacrifices that had to go around it to mark it out as a special place. We are no less holy as the new temple of God. Chris reminded us last week that Part of our role as Christians is to be ambassadors of heaven 
And what better brand ambassador are those that embody and live out the values of what they're promoting? We are ambassadors of heaven, of God himself, and we are to be holy as he is holy. Paul is serious about this. But what's challenging and what's difficult for us to understand is who does Paul have in mind? Who are the unbelievers that we ought to wake up to and withdraw from? Who are we incompatible with? One of the most familiar applications and probably the first application that I was heard as a teenager, as a young Christian, was this. Oh, this passage means you are not to date, Mike, or you're never to marry a non-Christian, an unbeliever, which sounds very nice and simple, a very clear application. The trouble is, Paul doesn't address the marriage relationship specifically in these verses. The words that he uses, like partnership, fellowship, arrangement, are general kind of words of being in something together with somebody. But he doesn't specifically talk about marriage. And what does this passage therefore mean to say a a married couple, they got married when they were both non-Christians, but the, the wife, under God's grace, becomes a Christian, but her husband hasn't yet come to that point. Should she now view her husband, as Paul talks about here, as a servant of the devil and therefore withdraw from him or withhold affection from him? How does that square with other passages where Paul talks about, no, love your non-Christian husband, love him and point him to Christ? It's not as clear-cut, is it? Another application that I heard as a young Christian was, this means that you ought not to be worldly young Christian man. Don't go to that party, don't drink alcohol, don't watch television and don't wear those clothes. Maybe you've heard similar things as well. But where does that stop? Should I withdraw my children from the local soccer team because they're playing with unbelievers? Do I change dentists because he's not a Christian? He charges a lot, so maybe that's a good reason to to change. But do you see the point? Where does it stop? Do we, as Christians, just form our own little Amish community where we exclude ourselves from the world? But how does that square up with what we heard last week about being ambassadors of Christ to a dead and dying world? It's complex, isn't it? The idea is simple enough. Don't be mismatched with unbelievers, but the application of it is quite challenging. Who has Paul got in mind? Well, I think the the Corinthian context may be able to help us and shed some light on this. And I think we have an answer from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to 13. I'll put it up there on the screen, but you're welcome to turn in your Bibles to that passage uh, as well. It's on page 1053, where Paul writes this. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate or partner with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. 
I think the mismatch, the unequally yoke that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 6 is this, to steer clear of the person who has a veneer of spirituality, even Christian spirituality, who claims to be a believer, yet is in the darkness and promoting things like immorality, greed and idolatry. You're to wake up to them, says Paul, and pack your suitcase and withdraw from them. I don't think as Christians we're meant to withdraw from the world completely. Paul says that. I don't think in these verses in 2 Corinthians 6 that Paul specifically has in mind where our kids play soccer or even whom to marry. I do think that it's crazy for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. I don't think we can get it from this verse, but there are other verses that directly speak to that relationship. 1 Corinthians 7.31, for example, talks about that. But here in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking about waking up and withdrawing from those who claim to be believers, but yet are taking you away from Christ. In the Corinthian church, it might have been those that say, it's okay to go to the pagan temple and get drunk with everybody, even sleep with the temple prostitutes. We all basically believe the same thing. It's okay to sacrifice food to these gods because we know that they're not really anything. Or today it might be those that say, it's okay to give the pulpit to a bishop who doesn't even believe in the resurrection of Christ because we're all Anglican. Or it's okay to to sacrifice your Christian integrity on Monday to Friday, as long as you turn up to church on Sunday. I think that's what Paul has in mind. And he may also have in mind the false apostles within the church in Corinth the ones that he rebukes over and over again in this letter in particular for their outward displays of power, which often sound very spiritual. God must be blessing us because look at what we can say and what we can do, but yet stands in contrast to the weakness of a crucified Messiah and the humility and love that he calls his followers to walk in. The Corinthians were to wake up to them and to withdraw from them and so too are we. In my early years of ministry, I was responsible for coordinating scripture assemblies in a local public school. And one year I was told by the school that I needed to include the Hindu scripture coordinator and class in the Christmas assembly. I was told that we're all basically the same and so just get on with it. But what compounded the challenge even more was that the Hindu Swami who I was meeting with was thoroughly convinced that he worshipped Jesus just like I did. Mind you, he had many other gods that he also included in his worship as well. And it became clear to me that the, the Hindu Jesus that he followed was not the Jesus that is clothed in the gospel that we see in the scriptures, the one who said quite clearly, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He didn't believe that. The Jesus that he followed was not the Jesus that we and I believed in. So what was I going to do? Do I withdraw from the assembly to not be associated with him? That seems to be a direct application of 2 Corinthians 6. And my conscience was going in that direction, but I didn't want to lose the opportunity to proclaim Christ. It wasn't a university campus, but it was a local school. I didn't want to lose that opportunity. So what did I do? I prayed a lot. And then I agreed for the Hindu Swami to be up on stage at the very beginning 
and he led his kind of Hindu mantra to the tune of Old MacDonald Had a Farm or whatever it was, but I wasn't up on stage with him. And then after he finished, I then went up onto the stage and I said, now we are going to begin the Christmas assembly. Now, you may have done something different. I'm not saying that was the only way to go. Maybe you wouldn't have gone to the assembly at all. We all need to pray, don't we, and ask for wisdom in difficult situations. But what we cannot afford to do is to press snooze and to go back to sleep and pretend it's not an issue, pretend it doesn't really matter. There is a mismatch in certain relationships, and particularly when it comes to ministry, we don't want to invite, invite the wolf into the wool business. That will never end well for the sheep. And it's the same in many of our personal relationships and even Christian organisations that we might be compelled to support. Churches, Christian conferences, speakers that we listen to on YouTube or on podcasts, even books that we might read. We need wisdom, yes, but wisdom starts with being awake and being ready to pack the suitcase if need be. Wake up. The second, and we'll do this one much quicker, is uh, the next section, verse 7, 2 to 16, where I think Paul encourages the Corinthians to, to warm up. Wake up, but also warm up, particularly to him. Have a look at verse 2, where he says this, accept us or warm up to us. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, defrauded no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I've already said that you are in our hearts to live together and to die together. And Paul's accept us there echoes what he said in chapter 6, verse 13, where he said to the Corinthians, open your heart to us. We're not like the false apostles who are using you for their own ego. We love you. We care for you. We're willing to even die for you. And although the relationship with the Corinthian church is anything but hot uh, for Paul, Paul is confident that it's beginning to warm up and he wants that to continue. Have a look at verse 4 where he says, I have great confidence in you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with encouragement. I'm overcome with joy in all our afflictions. Why is he hopeful that they're beginning to warm up? And why does he want that to continue? Well, because things have changed. And we won't read it again, but from verse 5 to verse 16, Paul outlines the reason for his confidence and his joy in the Corinthians because they have responded so well to the severe letter that he wrote to them, the one that caused him many sleepless nights and great tears and anguish. He's heard from Titus who visited them that they've responded well to that. They've warmed up again to the Apostle Paul. What's changed? Have a look at verse 9. Paul says, I rejoice not because you were grieved by my letter, that is, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. After reading Paul's letter, they were grieved, yes, but they didn't allow their grief uh, to lead to prideful rejection of Paul, nor to self-pity and despair either. Paul says that's worldly grief and just leads to death. And we know how true that is, even in our own personal experience. The devil still loves to do that for Christians, that when you've done the wrong thing, to get on your pride high horse and say it doesn't matter, or to just loathe yourself in self-pity and despair, 
where you don't see or experience the freedom and forgiveness that you can have in Christ. But the Corinthians are different. They've responded to their grief in terms of godly grief, says Paul, because their sorrow pushed them not to despair, not to pride, but to repentance. And I think here we see what true repentance is. It's a word that Christians often throw around, but is often misunderstood. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for yourself. It's not even saying sorry, as good as that is. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life that is noticeable by others. The Corinthians have repented and it was noticeable to Titus and it's become noticeable to Paul. And so he rejoices that they've warmed back up to him and his teaching. Now, obviously, for us, we have a different relationship to the Apostle Paul than the Corinthian church did, don't we? But I've noticed that there's a a similarity that I think we need to be aware of. There's a growing distaste to the Apostle Paul in our wider community, and even in some church circles, where they ridicule Paul, say they didn't write certain things, and even just reject his teachings outright. Many, even Christians, claim to love Jesus but loathe the Apostle Paul. Jesus was kind and compassionate, but Paul, such a hardliner, such a sexist, a bigot, a homophobe, and so reject him. And you must remember that it was Israel Folau quoting, pretty much, Paul's teaching from 1 Corinthians that led him to be sacked from his job. But we must remember that Paul was the Apostle to the Gentiles, And unless you're a Jew here this morning, welcome if you are, but I gather that's not most of us. Paul is our apostle. We are here today because of the missionary movement that he started 2,000 years ago. We would not be here unless God used the apostle Paul in a profound way. I love this quote that I'm going to put up on the screen from John Piper, a great American pastor. This is how he talks about the apostle Paul. And I'd love for you to echo that as well. He says this, I have lived with the Apostle Paul for over 60 years, admired him, envied him, feared him, pounded on him, memorised him, written poems about him, wept over his suffering, soared with him, sunk to the brink of death with him, imitated him, ha, imitated him. In 10 lives, I would not come close to his sufferings or what he saw. But as the decades of my companionship with Paul have gone by, I have come to love him and to believe him. Even if the wider community and even some churches are moving away from the Apostle Paul, let that not be said of us. He is our Apostle. Let's continue to be warmed up to him. Now, every not morning person or even sports person on a cold winter morning as much as they might be awake and and warmed up and ready for action has the drive and motivation to get out onto the sporting field and sometimes in the christian life it can be like that yep i'm awake i'm noticing everything that could withdraw me from christ and i I, i'm warmed up i want to commit to the apostle paul and his teaching but i just need some energy i need that coffee to get going what is that for the christian Well, I think we have an answer. And it was hidden there in verse 16 to 18 of chapter 6. And this is such good news, such hope for a cold winter morning. Paul says this. It's a promise. For we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. 
And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch any unclean thing. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It's not an easy thing to wake up and to withdraw from people or things that are going to take you away from Christ. It's not an easy thing for a Muslim or a Hindu or someone growing up in communist China to leave behind those things and commit to Christ when their whole identity was wrapped up in those things before. It's not easy. It's not easy to warm up to a Christian who has lovingly rebuked you from God's word. It's not easy. Living for the one who died and rose again may cost us many things, relationships, experiences that other people are having. But look at what you gain. God himself. God himself. His welcome, his love, his presence. I will dwell among you. I will walk with you. You're not alone. As you head out on a cold winter morning to live for him, he's with you. He's in you. You are his holy temple. Brothers and sisters, remember who you are. And you have something better than coffee to get you going every morning. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment to reflect on who we are, our life before God. Have you become complacent with sin? Complacent with false teaching? Do you grieve over sin? Do you repent quickly? Or have you stopped aiming at Christ's likeness? Pride. You're paralyzed by despair that you can't get any better. That's what it looks like when you've forgotten who you are. Remember who you are. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. You've been reconciled to God through the blood of his son. You are his holy dwelling place. He promises to be in you, with you, beside you every day. Remember who you are. Cleanse yourself in the saving blood of Christ again today. Turn away from all impurity of the flesh and the spirit. Commit to God in the silence of your heart right now. Our Father, we thank you that you are our holy God and heavenly Father that despite our imperfection, you have committed yourself to us. We pray that your spirit will produce in us more and more fruit, that we would complete that sanctification, that we would be your holy people, not to earn heaven points, but to point people to heaven. Father, take us and use us this week. Send us out into the world in the power of your spirit to live and to work for your praise and your glory. Amen.